Another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, in in front of the lens, talking to the movers and shakers, the TV and filmmakers, directors, writers, producers, costumers, actors, production designers, uh, edit, film editors, sound editors, screenwriters, you name it, we talk to them. And of course, you know, composers composers are a big thing um you can find us every monday right here on adrenalineradio.com or you can watch because nick big boss nick likes to have toys so he has a live stream going on the adrenalineradio.com facebook so you can actually watch nothing to see i'm just sitting here but we do i do fun tablescapes every week and if you're taking a look at the facebook live stream you're going to see an assortment of books here I'm, a, I'm big on books, books and films, books and TV, books, period, uh, and film. And for those of you that are looking, I've got an assortment here today. We've got three wonderful books by Joe R. Lansdale, Cold in July, which was adapted into an incredible film by Jim Mickle uh, uh, of Mice and Minestrone, part of the, <clears throat> the and I'm choking here today, part of the Happen Leonard uh, saga. Also, we've got, and of course, there's a great, a fun, fun, fun documentary that just came out on Joe R. Lansdale, which is why I brought the books today. Uh, and it is called All Hail the Popcorn King. Any fans of Joe Lansdale are familiar with his drive-in movie series of books, just decades and decades. He is one of the most prolific writers around. Uh, the documentary by Hansi Oppenheimer, who is a fan of Joe Lansdale. So the entire doc is essentially a fan love letter. Uh, and 90% of it in Joe's own words, but also hearing from filmmakers like Don Coscarelli and Bruce Campbell, who did Bubba Hotep, which was written by, the book was written by uh, Joe. Then Happen Leonard, which was turned into a series. Drive, you've got... Uh, other people that they talked to, uh, Joe Hill, Amber Benson, uh, Mick Garris, absolute, uh, Nick Dimici, who is Jim Mickle's uh, filmmaking partner. Just a really fun, fun uh, film. So that is available now digitally. So I really recommend it. It is, if you like any of Joe's work, be it Bubba Hotep, be it Happen Leonard, any of his written, any of his other books, just see it. It's great. And of course, we've got Jacqueline Wilson's Four Children and It, which was just made into a movie. It is perfect family entertainment. It's available digitally on VOD. Uh, and it's got a great cast of kids. The scene stealer is, however, Michael Caine uh, voicing the Simiad, a.k.a. It. Russell Brand, Matthew Good, Paul Patton. It is a 
fabulous family film. So if you're still looking for something to entertain the kids this summer, and little kids can see this film too, um, check it out. But just so you know, there is the book on which the film is based. Uh, great story time reading. And of course then, a book that I am in love with. It's not Jake Tapper's uh, book, The Outpost. This is by Clint Romashaw, who is one of the men who was at the Battle of Camdesh, one of the men portrayed by Scott Eastwood in The Outpost. These are his words. Uh, a, a, incredible book. Incredible book. I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, but continuing our love fest. As you know, we've had a love fest going on for the Outpost for weeks now. Uh, last week you heard, a couple weeks ago, you heard my exclusive interview with Rod Lurie, director of the Outpost. This week, uh, last week was Caleb Landry Jones, who Oscar, 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 Oscar. I can't say enough about Caleb. And now today you're going to hear my exclusive with Taylor John Smith. Taylor plays uh, Lieutenant Andrew Bunderman. Uh, it's an amazing performance. Again, this is uh, this entire ensemble in The Outpost. I don't know how Rod lucked out with the cast he did. These are the best of the best. When you hear about the Battle of Camdesh, when you hear about Camp Keating, and you hear about these soldiers... You know they are the best of the best. Well, in casting this film, Rod exemplified that with the young men that he brought in. Scott Eastwood, Milo Gibson, um, Caleb, Taylor John Smith, so many more. Uh, Orlando Bloom, a lot of young talent. And these guys gave it, it all, gave it their all, as you heard from Caleb Landry Jones last week. He was inspired by his brother, who was a Marine, and he wanted to do right by him, by the Gold Star families, and by Ty Carter, Staff Sergeant Ty Carter, Medal of Honor recipient, whom he, rep who he plays in the film. Taylor, same thing. It all comes down to they want to honor the man, honor the unit, and honor the Gold Star families for those that didn't come home. Um, Taylor is outstanding as Andrew Bunderman thrust into a position of power during that 12-hour that siege uh, where you had 54 men at Camp Keating who should have, could have been overrun by hundreds of Taliban coming down from the mountains. But it's because of their decisiveness, their dedication, uh, their beliefs, their values. And, of course, Roma Shaw saying, if we get the front gate we take this camp back. And that's exactly what they all did. And it was Bunderman who was in calm and calling for air support and trying to orchestrate and organize. Uh, originally, uh, Bunderman was, re he received the Silver Star last year. That uh, was upgraded to the Distinguished Service Cross. An amazing, again, there's, I can't say enough about the outpost. If you haven't seen it, see it. If you've seen it once, see it again. But the performances of all these young men, just, they do great honor to our men and women in arms. Um, it's a privilege to know so many of the actors and so many of our military men and women. But 
Taylor, you've seen him most recently in Hunter Killer with Gerard Butler, uh, which, as you'll hear, I have already bought three times to watch. <laughs> uh, he's been in American Crime. He's done lots of one-offs, Grey's Anatomy, Hawaii Five-O, CSI. He's been in the miniseries Sharp Objects. Uh, next up, he's back in the military vent again. Only in the World War II era, Shadow in the Cloud, playing opposite Chloe Grace Moretz. But right now, take a listen to the very fun conversation. And this is only half of, half of our interview. I just want you all to know that. Uh, we went off on a variety of subjects, including 68 Whiskey and Boz the Goat, uh, into coins and change and films, much as Caleb and I did, uh, talking about other films and other comparisons and, and cinematic experiences. But this is called down for you. Um, so here he is, Taylor John Smith. And I know you're listening, Taylor, so thank you, thank you, thank you again. A big shout out. And I know Rod's listening, and Rod knows my undying respect for him, and especially with this film. So without any further ado, oh, I should mention, stick around for the second half of the show because director Bob Rose is joining us on his doc, Instaband. And I got to tell you, folks, this is one of the best docs of the year. And for all of you musicians, wannabes, middle-tier performers out there, singer-songwriters out there now, this is the doc that you want to see. So for my friends, for Michael Hampton, for Fee Boogie, um, for uh, Megan Jade, even this is the doc you want to see. But for right now, let's go ahead and let you listen to Taylor John Smith talking the outpost. Hello, Taylor. Hey, Debbie, how you doing? I'm fine. How are you? Amazing. I woke up today, so I can't complain. I can't thank you enough for wanting to talk to me about about the outpost taylor this is such a treat um are you kidding me it's, it's my it's my pleasure I, i'm honored that you uh you wrote such amazing things it's, it's hard you know most interviews are pretty surfacey um or like sorry uh, movie reviews are pretty surfacey but um you gave such an in-depth one that like it i don't know i just i had to like speak to the person that wrote it so i'm grateful that you're taking the time to um, you know, just sit down and, and talk with me. I really appreciate it, Debbie. And I mean, I've been watching you for a few years for, with your one-offs, and then you get into Sharp Objects. I love oh. Hunter Killer. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you said you watched it three times. I'm like, well, it's my, it's my kind of girl. And, and the kicker is I paid for it on VOD three times because you watch it, and then you got 48 hours to watch it on Spectrum. Yeah. So I watched it once. Well, then the following Saturday morning at like four in the morning, it's like, I want to watch this again. <laughs> My 48 hours was long expired. So I paid for it again. And then I paid for it yet again. <laughs> you're the number one because you're the only reason it's being kept afloat. <laughs> <laughs> Anything that deals with the military, I always look at with an even greater eye because I have such respect and reverence for the military and our men in arms. And especially yeah, when it's a true story like this. And this is a true story unlike any other story we've ever seen told, Taylor. Wow. 
Yeah, I mean, not a lot of people knew about it. I mean, there are a couple of books written about it, great books at that, but, you know, you can only read such a such an audience with, with literature. But movies, I mean, everyone can sit down and kind of, you know, log out for a little bit and just soak it all in. When a book, you got to really stay with it, and it, it doesn't do the whole thing justice. It's not as visceral sometimes as, like, seeing it in person. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so many people, it's it's a visual medium. That's like even with my radio show, it's radio, but there's a live stream. And sometimes people will look at the live stream. And I always do tablescapes because people need visual aids. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone needs a good PowerPoint every once in a while. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's it, which is why the approach with the outpost is also so important because it sticks to the facts. It sticks to the men. There is no extraneous romanticizing or subplots of pining for this one or, you know, like 68 Whiskey. I love that show. Love that show. If they come That's back... That's about the, um, the medics, right? Yes, on Paramount Network. And I really hope that they come back for a second season. If they do, you really need to, like, submit and get on that show. You know what's funny is I, I've uh, I've done a couple of military movies now and it's like I, I wanted to do something fun like or funny maybe <laughs> as opposed to like these like heavy dramas. Um, but uh, I saw that show and um, it uh, it looked it looked amazing. Uh, I just haven't got it. I don't have TV. Uh, maybe that's a good thing. Um, you smart man, <laughs> I, smart man. Yeah, yeah. I try not to watch the news too much or the you know. Um, or like stick stick around the TV too much. When there's something great, I always find a way to watch it. I'll go to a friend's house, or you know, I'll go support another actor friend of mine if they have you know something coming out. But for the most part, I try to stay away from the TV. <laughs> I I never get anything done. It, even though very serious, very serious subject matter, that show deals more with the camaraderie, with the antics that the guys do. It's kind of a 21st century mash. But unlike that show, which is all fictionalized and which has all these subplots and personal dramas of everybody, Outpost doesn't have any of this personal drama. It's cut to the chase. This is a job, and we're here doing a job, and we see all of you doing your jobs. And that's something we don't normally see in a film. Yeah, and, and a lot of the, um, like, excuse my French, but the, you know, burning of the shitters. Yes. The the little you know the the phone calls in between where you get two minutes and a poor connection and you know you got to relate two weeks worth of information and then you don't know if that's going to be your last call or not. The you know Bunderman, Lieutenant Andrew Bunderman, the guy that I was you know blessed enough to be able to play. He uh, you know he's an officer and there needs to be some sort of separation between the enlisted guys and the, you know the the NCOs. He skated that, that thin line and really had a good relationship with um, with his soldiers. And there's a scene where, you know, they take turns waterboarding each other. And they, mm -hmm. they actually did that, you know? Yeah. There's I a mean, lot of stuff that happens in between the, the moments of, of sheer panic and terror. Excuse me, I had the hiccups. <laughs> um, where, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's mostly calm moments of you know, hanging out or shooting the shit or, you know, making the, the, the outpost as ready as possible and then pure terror. Mm -hmm. you, you can't really get that without showing it and, and taking the time to do to do so. And, yeah, and this is where Rod excels and this is where the editing kicks in and going with these long oneers. 
um, because it allows all of that to happen. But I'm really curious, Taylor. Number one, had you read Jake's book? Absolutely, yeah. I brought it with me um, every day on set. I read it before. Uh, I think it was 600 pages, but really went into depth with, with each individual character and the role they played uh, personally to each other and the things that they battled with when they weren't being attacked. Um, I know every single soldier on that outpost played a vital role, it, whether they were you know in the, in the tactical operations center or they were at the mortar pit or wherever they may be, they all played a vital role. And if one person didn't do their job, everyone else bore the consequences of it. You know, help me with finding out a little bit more about Andrew Bunderman and, and uh, how he led his men. Now, I'm curious, when you first, first did you audition for Bunderman? Were, was there any other role that, that you were looking at? I'll let you know in a minute why I'm asking you that specifically. Um, originally, Andrew Kirk, uh, or sorry, Andrew, uh, Captain Kirk um, oh. was uh, the role that popped out to me. Obviously, I wasn't you know, uh, strapping, you know, you know, huge ripped guy was like this, you know, destined leader, um, you know, kind of the, the alpha male of the group. But for some reason, his, you know, his story really resonated with me. Um, but then, um, you know, for obvious reasons, Jack Kessie got that role and, and then, uh, Lieutenant Andrew Bunnerman popped up and I hadn't paid attention to, um, to Andrew's character as much when I originally read through. Because Jack Jack Kessie's character, Captain Kirk, was the one that um, really popped up to me. But when I reread it, I'm like, "Oh, this is this is me. I, I can do this. I can easily see you in that role. I can see oh, you. Oh, thank you, Debbie. I, I can see you in that role. But I ask, you know, which character popped out and what one you might have read for? Because I'm now curious. Did you after you knew you were going to be Bunderman? Did you view the the DVIDs, the Defense Visual Info Distribution videos? There were interviews done by a military reporter with Bunderman two weeks after the battle took place on October third, two thousand nine. These were t these interviews were done, and it's available to the public to see. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I've actually watched them on uh, on YouTube and Vimeo. There was a whole compilation of the interviews, kind of like. Um uh, you know, post-operation type interview where they talk through what went right, what went wrong. And that was hugely important. And then I actually got to talk to him on the phone and kind of get his input and his personal, uh, you know, apart from the the Army's label, like what, what was Andrew's take on it? Mm -hmm. And that was immensely helpful. And here, like an idiot, I just go directly to the military sources to look at videos. Darn! I got to start just looking well, at YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we should have should have switched, uh, you know, our, our information. That <laughs> might have been a little bit more official, as opposed to like, God, oh, you know, was on YouTube for 19 hours until I found it. Yeah. Well, and what I love about the David interviews that I saw was that the military jumped right in there, and so this was still two weeks fresh off the battle. I mean, it's like a legitimate after-action report. It is like, oh. I mean, I, I was surprised these guys were, you know, still in Afghanistan so to have these interviews done. I guess they have to conduct them, but, I mean, it was directly after. And uh, I don't think two weeks is a long enough time to soak up all that information and then be able to regurgitate it out the way that they did. Yeah. You know, Straight-faced, and it was all business. I was, was very surprised. No, I agree with you. I the, His composure was exactly, astounding. Yeah. 
But that is, you brought that to the role in the film, Taylor. Um, Bunderman is very composed. He's very military. When the battle starts is when we see Bunderman start to get a little bit rattled. Jumps and trying to debate, you know, which decision do I make? Can I make a decision? Can I make a decision? And you really see that come to the fray in your confrontation um, with Scott Eastwood in the comm shack as he starts saying, we have to attack now, 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 we have to take back the gate. And you're thinking, yeah. you're thinking, and you can see the beads of sweat. <laughs> Just, I, I saw that in your tweet. I'm like, oh, my God, she's amazing. <laughs> and I'm looking, and I'm like, that is not glycerin. Uh, that was a hot set. That was a contained area you were in. I'm sure there were not fans running. Because several of you had sweat on you, and this was not the glycerin sweat that doesn't move. This sweat yeah. was beating and dripping down your face. Oh, you're amazing. See, this is the attention to detail that I love about you. Uh, uh, that, actually, I mean, he was, he was calm under pressure. And you have to keep in mind, most all of these, these you know, people, are all, almost all these soldiers were kids. Yeah. I mean, Andrew Bunderman was a kid, which is, you know, I, he obviously had to grow up so fast and so quickly before he even got to that outpost but when all of a sudden your you know commanding officer leaves and puts you in charge and that very next morning the outpost gets hit <laughs> in in you know an unthinkable way it's like i mean you either you either rise or you fall and he, he rose to the occasion but everybody did and also andrew said like you know the best leaders listen and a lot of times people in positions of power think that they, you know, know what's best. And maybe they do, but it can't hurt to listen to what the people around you have, you know, in, in mind. Because then you can get the best of both worlds. And you can, good leaders look at all the options on the table and then they, they pick the one that's going to have or yield the best results. And I think Andrew Butterman, Lieutenant Andrew Butterman did that phenomenally uh, under a ton of pressure. Because those those guys he was in charge of them whether they you know lived or died and sadly you know a lot of them gave their lives but he was in charge of, of those men that day and and he was a kid you and i like the average bear we, we i mean we might think in a in a in a moment we, we could be brave and maybe we would be but then you hear about just total you know lack of self-preservation that, that these soldiers have, you know, when they're just thinking about the person to the left or the right. It's not about the politics or, you know, why they're over there in the first place. They don't care about that in the moment. It's like they're trying to keep the person to the left and the right of them alive, and that's it. Yeah. And, and the things that they do to, to make that happen, it's just absolutely incredible. I have, I have so much respect for, for men and women in the military because it's, it's a thankless job sometimes. You know, and for you to have the opportunity to play somebody like Bunderman and for all of you guys to step in for you, for Orlando, for Scott, for Milo, for Caleb, for all of you to step in and actually play these heroes. In my estimation, each and every one of these men is a hero. Absolutely. It's, it's a daunting, it's daunting to think that anybody would even attempt to do that. But I'm wondering, Taylor, when you step into this role, how much of a weight is on you? How much of a burden do you feel to do honor, to pay justice to the man? And especially since Bunderman is still alive. Oh, yeah. Well, I have a, I have a funny story, actually, because, I mean, obviously, there's, 
anytime you get to play a real person, the the, the stakes are so much higher because you, you care less about what the, you know, sounds bad, but you care less about what the audience thinks and, and way more about, you know, the person that you're playing thinks because it's, it's their story that you're telling. And, and you, you can't really screw that up because you get one shot, you know. More often than not, there's about one movie that gets made about a person's life, and maybe two, but they usually only remember the, the you know, the, the first of them, maybe. Um, but Andrew was such a cool guy that we had talked on the phone for maybe an hour or two, and towards the end, I'm like, Andrew, what's the one thing, what's the number one thing that um, that I absolutely have to get right, you know, no matter what, that I, that I, I, I can't, you know, falter on, that I, I need to get right? And he was so cool and so funny he was like I, I don't know what you look like uh i i don't watch many movies He's like i got you know three kids i, I work all the time um but uh, i just want you to get across to the audience how incredibly incredibly good looking I, I am and if you can't do that i think that that you know maybe i should talk to the director about switching you out with somebody else but he was just like totally he made me feel so relaxed and so like okay, like, this is the kind of guy he was. Easygoing, you know, he, he was a, a friend, but also a leader, and he made everybody feel comfortable. Like, he knew I was a little stressed about the idea of playing him, and then even talking to him on the phone, I'm like, oh, this is real. This is, you know, I can't back out now. And uh, he just made me feel so relaxed and, and you know, easy-peasy, and that's the kind of man he was. So he, he took a huge burden off my shoulders, but there was still that in the back of my head. I need to do him justice and do, you know these other men justice by playing you know my part the best that I can um, but yeah the stress was definitely there right up until that point when he totally you know <laughs> totally made me feel comfortable <laughs> thank god for that you in this role you didn't have to do as much of the physicality as Scott did as Milo did as Caleb did uh, and as some of the other guys uh, but there were still those very long takes that Rod shot with Lorenzo. I'm curious how Lorenzo and the camera, how that may have affected your performance with such long takes. You can't screw it up because we also had so much to film. There's a lot that didn't end up making it in the movie. I wanted uh, director's the movie, you know, Two hours long, but there was also so much about that story that that still didn't get to, to make it in the final cut. But when you're doing these super long takes with Lorenzo, you can't screw it up. Because if one person drops the ball, we gotta, even at the end of the, the scene, if one person, you know, messes up or floods a line or, you know, this, that, and the other, you gotta go start again from the beginning. So everybody's gotta be in their A game. And it really forces you to be present. I mean, completely present. And forget that the camera's there in a sense, you know, because if you start thinking about, oh, this, you know, you know, lenses on me now, or oh my line, then you're gonna eventually screw it up. But if you're just present and in the moment, and you do your job when the time comes, and everybody else does their job around you, then it, it works out. And it also doesn't give you a chance to breathe as an audience member because you, you feel like you're in it. You're not yeah. doing these crazy, you know, close-ups and you know, a French two-over and like. It, I mean, there's. There's a lot of you know great moments in the, in the film, but mostly it's just long scenes that you're along for the ride for. Yeah, and the fact that it's always you know some of my favorites are especially when Caleb as Carter, when he is running, he's carrying Mace oh on a stretcher, God. and he's running, and the camera is going backwards, 
as Caleb is running into the camera. And that oh, yeah. it was just like the intense. And his eyes when he's looking up. Oh. To be able to get all that in, in one shot. I mean, there's so much going on. And, uh, I mean, Caleb's a phenomenal, phenomenal actor. And Lorenzo is a phenomenal DP. It's just oh. all the pieces kind of came together, really. And then with Rob's vision, it, it was one of those things you take a shot on and, you know, it, it, it worked tremendously. Yeah, and I mean, Lorenzo, I've loved his work forever. And the fact that he did Behind Enemy Lines and he did Risen, which is accounts for some of the really beauteous pastoral work that he does in The Outpost. So, you, And then he did Megan Levy or some of the big ones for me. But you yeah. see everything he's done before comes together in this film. It was like a culmination almost. I mean, even the color palette, too. He's had a oh. lot of experience with, like, the, you know, that kind of landscape. But he just... Uh, I don't know how he does it. He's kind of a genius, but and he's also the sweetest guy ever. So it makes you you want to root for him even more. <laughs> you know, how did you prepare for this role? Obviously, you didn't have to do. I still can't believe Caleb, who I've been watching. The first time I interviewed him was I think eleven years ago for the last Exorcism, and this skinny, shy kid. You know, wow. how does he build himself up? to the kind of physicality in this film. Scott, yeah, I expect physicality. Milo, absolutely, I expect it. Um, and some of uh, Kwame Patterson, I ex would expect and would have liked to have seen more physicality from him, but Broward wasn't a physical guy. Um, so I'm curious how you prepared for Bunderman, who didn't have to go on these long oneers running around carrying ammo, carrying artillery. But still, you had to be physically fit, physically ready for the military performance, but also mentally. So how did you prepare for this role? So about a month and a half, maybe two months out of uh, before we you know, flew to Bulgaria to film, Caleb and I started working out at this really awesome gym called Studio. And I remember, there's a funny offset uh, store, but we were going to go do, you know, basically like training to get ready, get in shape before we went out to do the two weeks of boot camp before we started filming in Bulgaria. And the first time I picked up Caleb, he, uh, he got in my car and we were driving for a little bit and, uh, and something caught the corner of my eye. We're like pulling into the, into the gym and I'm, I'm like, Caleb, are you wearing cowboy boots? Caleb was wearing cowboy boots to the gym. He had never really worked out before and like he just showed up as Caleb, which you gotta love. And so we, you know, he quickly learned uh, learned his lesson the hard way. But then we, we worked out a bunch uh, for about two months before we flew out to Bulgaria um, just to, you know, get ready. I, I also did some training down um, in Tennessee with some friends of mine who are in the military, uh, just like some firearm stuff. I didn't know, you know, the extent of what, you know, how, how much of my role would be outside of the, the, the talk or the tactical operations center. But I just wanted to be well-versed with everything. And then as far as the mental side, I read a lot of um, Colonel Grossman's books on combat and on killing and uh, uh, just to get into the head of like what a, a soldier would go through. Um, and then I read Red Platoon, um, Clint's book, and then also uh, um, The Outpost by Jake Tapper. Mm -hmm. There's another great documentary, there's a couple great documentaries in a, a book. One's called uh, The Tribe. And then Corn uh, Gall is another great one. The Hornet's Nest. There's a couple documentaries that I watched just to 
see what it's like for somebody out in very remote valley like Korangal or, you know, mm-hmm. people in Nuristan province. So just try to immerse myself in that world as much as possible before I, before I got out to Bulgaria. And then obviously we had um, Ray Mendoza, who's a Navy SEAL, and Jericho Denman and his brother, who were um, Army Rangers that were walking us through the first two weeks while we were doing boot camp as, as, a, as a unit, as a team. And that was immensely helpful as well because we just we got to bond together and we got to suffer a little bit together and I don't know our our, our chemistry kind of formed through that I think. Mm-hmm. How much rehearsal time did you get? Now, granted, the your choreography is nothing like battle, and what was going on outside the comm shack. <laughs> but what kind of rehearsal time did you get? And I'm very curious how much time you spent hanging out with the guys when here you are as the first lieutenant and you know you you typically you've got the non-coms and the comms separated mentally and a lot and physically for to keep that division of power that that line that succession order going so i'm curious about that taylor well, again, with what Bunderman told me, he was like, you know, I forget what exactly he said, but it was something along the lines of when he got to the outpost, he was like, I like football and I like to drink beer. Like, you know, if, if we can get along with those two things, I think we're going to be fine. And he was very much one of the guys. He, there was a separation because there had to be mm-hmm. um, in the leadership, but he was also like, he was the guy that these, these soldiers would come talk to when they didn't feel like they're their worries or their, you know, frustrations um, with leadership, it warranted a response directly up top or they feel like it would get kind of thrown away or ignored. They would come to, to Andrew just to, like, talk to him under the open door policy. Um, and there's that scene where, where Caleb comes up and talks to uh, Bunderman. That was the kind of guy he was. So he, he broke a few rules here and there, but for the right reasons because he cared about his men. Mm-hmm. As far as rehearsals, um, rehearsals happened during the first two weeks of boot camp. So we would do boot camp till like, you know, from early in the morning to like, you know, 12 in the afternoon. We'd have lunch and then we'd do rehearsals. And you also have to remember that um, Scott broke his ankle prior to filming. So I was also helping, you know, Lorenzo and Rod with his running scenes and um, basically in, in place of Scott because Scott couldn't run around because he was on his boot and he wasn't even out in Bulgaria uh and so I think a week prior, yeah, as far as hanging out with the guys, absolutely. I mean, it's one thing to have an obvious, like, separation where, you know, I'm the officer in charge and then everybody else is, you know, kind of a grunt. And you're supposed to keep that separation. But as far as, like, chemistry, these guys knew each other. You know, they had all, they all you know, served together. They're, they're, right. They were buddies, even though there was a position of, of, of leadership. Uh, that Andrew held. I, of course, I spent every you know waking moment with with as many of the guys as I could. You know, we eat breakfast together, we work out together, we go swim together, we you know go get in trouble around the town together. We 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 did everything together, and I think that's what allowed there to be so much great chemistry and, and uh, um, camaraderie between the the cast. Okay, well, very important. Now you just said the key words. You went around town and got in trouble together, and you got (laughs) you got Orlando Bloom, you got Eastwood, you got Gibson there, you got James Jagger there, Corey Hardrick, all of these guys. Dare I ask how much trouble you guys all got into? I just said I'll just say the Brits know how to have a good time. They know how to how to drink and have a good time. (laughs) I think that's all I can say. Oh my 
God. Now, this was in Bulgaria that you guys were hanging out? Yes, ma'am. Oh, my God. I didn't know that there were places to hang out in Bulgaria. Well, they found them. (laughs) Oh, God. There's all the the pubs in the world there. Uh, And uh, there's pool halls and, you know, there's, you know, beautiful, uh, beautiful parks. And it's actually... There's a ton of amazing hikes. There's this place called Seven Magic Mountains, which is like this beautiful mountain range. Um, so we'd go get some exercise out there, go on long hikes. But there was, you know, even after set, everyone was like, let's go grab a pint. And then, you know, depending on who worked the next day, it would kind of dictate what kind of night they wanted to have. <laughs> That's fabulous. That's fabulous. Boy, I wish I'd been on that set. Oh, you yeah, you would have had a, a good old time. <laughs> oh, I, I have to ask, because I know a lot of people that are seeing the film already, and you know, I picked up on this too, there's so many scenes where you're watching Scott, you're watching Milo, and immediately, especially Scott, and the way, and his voice, number one, but then the way he looks, the way he says something, did you ever do a double take in your head that, oh my God, I'm talking to Clint Eastwood? Not until the trailer came out, actually. And I was like, we're taking this bitch back. I was like, what? That's what. That's where it got me, too. It was like, what? It's fitting him. I mean, he's obviously like his own person, but then you do think about it. I'm like, oh, wait, I mean, maybe that's where he, you know, he, he, it's like spitting image, you know. But, yeah, I mean, he crushed it. But uh, you, you can't help but think also, like, Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Not a bad not a bad, not no. a bad thing to hang on to. And and even with Milo and you know, he's in full battle gear, the helmet and all, and he comes around the corner with the one tally guy who's caught on the cell phone. And as he comes around oh, that profile and his voice yeah. identical to his dad in We Were Soldiers. Exactly, exactly. And Milo is the nicest guy ever, too, but he's such a badass. you got to be careful with him. <laughs> well, you know, I think, you know, everybody, I think you guys ended up with a really wonderful cast all the way around. Yeah, I agree. We And, and you, sometimes it, it works out and everybody connects and, you know, gets along, and sometimes it doesn't, but this is just one of those magical moments where everybody got along and everybody had something to bring to it and, um, you know, Nobody dilly dallied. Everyone brought their A game, and it, it rose the rest of the movie. You know, it, it forced everybody else to come prepared and you know come correct, which you don't always get. Now, how excited are you with the first weekend numbers for this film? I, you know what, I, I told myself this, and I actually wrote this in my journal. I don't. It's amazing, but like the only thing I cared about was that the families liked it. This, all the extra stuff, the reviews and the the, the numbers is just the cherry on top. It, it I, I'm not gonna lie, it feels great. But my number one concern was that all the Gold Star families and all the people that were actually representing were happy about it, and uh, and they were. So I, I I really can't complain. It's it's been a huge blessing. Now, have you talked to Andrew since he's seen the movie? Has he seen I'm gonna actually, I, I was, I didn't want to call him uh, when it first came out, but I'm going to call him this week and see if he's got some time to talk because uh, I want to give him a chance to watch it. But yeah, I'm going to give him a call and see what he thinks and see if we need to uh, take me out of it and, you know, put a more handsome male model in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
I think you did him more than justice. I think he should be quite satisfied with your performance, Taylor. I. <laughs> Thank you, Debbie. <laughs> yeah, if he has any gripes, send him to me, okay? And that was half of my interview with Taylor John Smith talking about The Outpost. Taylor is, he's an incredible actor, and he is, as you can tell, he is a fabulous, fabulous young man. Um, I can't wait to see what comes next for him after Shadow in the Cloud and other projects. Speaking of which, Taylor, you told me you'd let me know what happened on a potential audition. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Let me know. Um, so, The Outpost. And there still may be some more on The Outpost in the future. One never knows what I'm up to. So, thank you, Taylor. Thank you, Rod. Thank you, Caleb. Thank you, Scott. Um, thank you, Jake Tapper. And thank you to Clint Romisha and Andrew Bunderman, Ty Carter, and all the men uh, of Camp Outpost Keating. So let's switch gears here. Now we're going to have some fun. We got Bob Rose on the line. Hi, Bob. Hi, how's it going? It's going. I have to tell you, Instaband. This is a must-see documentary. It is one of my faves of the year. Every singer, songwriter, musician out there who wants to make it in the business today needs to see this documentary. It's and it's fun. Uh, <laughs> you did a, a great job with this. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was uh, definitely a fun process. You know, where did, what gave you the idea to tell this documentary? You know, everybody's heard the stories of the old days and how you made it and get your, your records to radio stations and try and get them played and build up an audience and a following. And then you get a record label that way. And, and then you become a band and you tour and then you stay in the studio for two years and... Uh, write more music and put on another album, then tour again until you get to be the age of Paul McCartney and the Rolling Stones and you're touring all the time uh, in their 70s. But here, this really focuses on the people that have a bit of a following that are kind of inching their way up in this new zeitgeist for music. They're past the Napster stage. Uh, but now we're into Spotify, iTunes, YouTube Music, Pandora, SoundCloud, all of that. And as you refer to in the film, uh, I think Amber Stoneman does, the middle tier bands. What made you want to tell this very specific story? Sure. Um, ir ironically, the idea came from, from actually being a filmmaker and, and navigating uh, the, the new filmmaking world. And, and through that process, I learned uh, a lot about, um, about building your brand. And, and I had all this knowledge that I had learned through filmmaking. And, and then I obviously saw that uh, it applies to music more than anybody. Mm -hmm. 
And what? How how did you decide on on this the middle tier group of performers as opposed to the ones that are just starting out? I mean, really just starting out. But this middle tier, which is really interesting in today's um, in today's music zeitgeist. Sure. Uh, you know, I I think the major reason why was because, uh, you know, they're the ones that are most affected mm-hmm. by this new music industry, and so so like your um, your Taylor Swifts of the world, they're they're not as impacted by how many um, how much money they can get off of streaming, mm-hmm. and also this middle tier, they're they're just. Um, they're just big enough that they might be able to do this as a living, but they're not selling out stadiums quite yet. Mm-hmm. So they're actually uh, out there doing the hustle themselves. You know, mm-hmm. there's not one single person that I interviewed or I dealt with that has somebody else handling their social media. So they're really the ones in there doing it. Uh, and, and so it, it just made the most sense to, to center it on their story. And that's something that I really liked seeing that you bring out is that you're focusing on a group, Paul McDonald, Stealing Oceans, um, Infamous Her, uh, Sam Tennis, uh, rapper Ray uh, Wimley. There, you, you focus a lot on them, and they are all, uh, as well as Adara, they're all very much, this is it. They want to control their brand. They want to control their sound. They want to control their aesthetic. And... They're very proud of the fact uh, that they are the ones that answer. You know, they respond. Everybody on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, on all the social media platforms, they are the ones personally engaging. And as we all know, anybody knows anything about the older, the old style of the music industry and even Hollywood there would be agents signing photos and things like that and doing the engagement. It wasn't always the talent themselves that was engaging. And they're very proud of the fact that they are making a personal connection with a potential audience, with the existing audience and a potential audience. And I love how you bring that out. Um, They really value the fan and the personal experience that they're creating through their music. Absolutely. I, I think the main thing that I really kind of picked up on was that um, how important that is for these music artists. I mean, we all have heard the expression, you're nobody without your fans. Well, this really kind of dials that into the to, to the tightest degree of, of, you know, the amount of time that they spend just in the DMs on Instagram per day is amazing. And just through the process of filming, I've seen their Instagram numbers and their followings and their stream numbers all go up because of that. And they're still going up, even in the middle of a pandemic when they're not doing live shows. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's one of the great things that I think it's custom made right now. A pandemic is perhaps you have a captive audience and everyone is trying to connect. And this is one thing that is universal and has been for centuries, music is the one universal language that other than math, um, (laughs) it's the one universal (laughs) language that connects us all. And they really, each of these artists understands that. 
And the fact that they are still, that they are recording stuff and they're putting it out there. They're constantly bringing new content for their fans. Um, uh, the hustle that they have, but it's more than hustle. It's the passion that they have. And that really, I found that very endearing about these people to the point that I now want to go listen to their music. That's awesome. And, you know, that's kind of what we were going for to begin with. Like, we wanted to show this new music industry and and the opportunities and the pitfalls that would come for music artists to kind of help. You know, we're all music lovers, but I think when you pull back the curtain and you kind of see a little bit more of how the sauce is made, it, it gives you like a newfound appreciation for what they're doing and, and for what they're building. And, and honestly, I mean, e- anybody that's trying to either put out content or build a brand or even as a small business, this, this movie works great for you because it really dials in all the different aspects of, of what you, you need to do to, to build your brand and to really get those, those, those relationships, right? Mm-hmm. Those, it's all about the relationships you have with, with your fans or with your clients. Um, and I, I think that that's the one thing that no matter what the p- new platform is, that, uh, that, that is eternal. You know, that, that'll be forever is, is that personal connection. Well, now where do you start with something like this. I mean, I admit, I'm not big on streaming. I like buying. I want that physical piece of vinyl. I want that CD. And plus, I know that the artists are getting the money. Um, having been somebody who, who lived through the whole Napster and, you know, the way every artist got ripped off. Nothing, nothing aggravates me more than when artists, when filmmakers get ripped off, they don't get, they don't get their due. They don't get their money and everybody else is, is in the, is in the grab. Um, that's why I always like the physical stuff. I'm, I'm rethinking the whole streaming aspect now because the money is actually going to the artist. Um, but where do you start? Because this really is, pardon me for saying, but this really is, you know, how to navigate them. It's, it's dummies 101 for how to navigate the music industry now. Um, you start. You cover everything. You give us a little backstory, thanks to Amber Stoneman with Unsigned Artist. Um, you bring in the Music Modernization Act, which is what really changed everything for these artists. But then, where do you go once you know, okay, Music Modernization Act, which Trump is the one that signed it. Um, surprise, surprise, but... You start with <laughs> you start with that. So he he has done some good things. This is one of them. Um, yeah. Where do you, where do you start in finding your artist that you then want to reach out to and bring into this documentary? Sure. You know the the ironic thing about how I found all the artists for this film is is using the same techniques and processes that we talk about in in the movie. So, for example, um, I work in, in, in TV and film production. It's my day job, um, and, and I travel quite a bit doing different jobs. So while I was traveling the, the period of time during production, I literally would go to, say, San Diego, and I'd go on Instagram and say, who's having shows tonight? And this is how it would start. This is how I did my first shoot. Uh, and, and I looked to see who was performing, and then I reached out to them in their DMs and said, hey, I'm doing this documentary. I'd love to come check out your show. 
And, and I did, and I shot my first interview. And then that led to the next thing and to the next thing. And then when I linked up with Amber Stoneman, she really, that was huge because her, her company, Natural and Sign, they had this whole roster of talent that is independent. Um, so you, pretty much the majority of, of people in the movie are from Nashville. And, and I kind of linked that through Amber. And here's the funny part is I found uh, um, Nashville Unsigned through a, a Spotify playlist. I looked up Nashville Music on Spotify, and they had a playlist, and then I reached out to her that way. <laughs> wow. So, um, yeah. But, you know, but you're not just sitting people down in a studio doing interviews. You are engaging, much as all of these talents are engaging with their fans on social media, you're engaging with these artists in very natural settings. You're at music festivals. You're at small venue performances. You've got a camera in there capturing merchandise being snapped. That's something that's never changed in the concert world. Merchandise. And there's big money in merchandise. Uh, and they all know it. And they take advantage of that. Um, when I say this is Dummies 101 for making it in the music industry, I, I, you have hit on everything. Um, but you really let them all be authentic, be at ease. You don't have them positioned and, you know, set up uh, for a Barbara Walters kind of interview. And that authenticity really comes across and is so engaging, Bob. Um you know, was that always your intent to, quote unquote, style the film that way? Because you're also editor on this. So right. this this doc is all about your editing. Once you have people like these, then it comes down to all about the editing. And your editing here is fabulous. Well, first off, thank you for the kind words. I, I really appreciate it. Um, so it, it's it's it's. Uh, you know, I've been in production for quite a bit, um, you know, doing awesome projects for awesome people. Uh, but this is my second documentary feature that I've directed, produced, and everything myself. And this one was completely different from my first movie, which was about <laughs> CrossFit. Um, whereas this one in the beginning was driven by interview versus, say, just filming with people all day. And then once I kind of found out these people's stories, and got a good idea, okay, these guys really would work nice for the documentary. Uh, at that point, they're kind of on our cast. And over the next, like, I'd say a little, probably about a year, mm -hmm. I, w I linked back up with all these people. So, so, so you might see a main interview. That, that was probably the first time I, I met that person. But then I'm coming back for a show. I'm coming back for rehearsals. It was important for me to show, again, peel back the curtain, on different areas of the music industry, like while I'm telling you, like I'm telling you about how important Instagram stories is while Steel and Ocean is recording a song, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I like that kind of let's put them in a natural, let, let's be a fly on the wall. And, and I have different um, bullet points. I have different bullet points of information that I definitely want to get across in the movie. Mm -hmm. But my, my goal is to always do it in the most organic and natural process. Mm -hmm. So this isn't a talking head video, but like, okay, Steel Notions did that. So now I've checked that mark off, you know, mm -hmm. and everybody kind of serves a little bit of a different purpose. And, and you know, you, you never know what 
things are going to turn out like in documentary. And, and that's what I like about it. But you do have things that you want to present information-wise. Because this is a very informational documentary. Very but much. I'm also hopefully telling it through these people's eyes, through these people's story. Um, and so that, that was always kind of the goal. And another thing I did, which is a super new age way of doing documentaries, and, and I'm actually doing the same on my next documentary, is I followed their, their Instagram, and I did a tremendous amount of screen records and screen captures. And you'll notice in the movie there's a lot of actually story elements that yes. are coming right off of their Instagram feed. Yes. So it became a storytelling part of the story of the movie, which I never anticipated. It just kind of happened through the process and really helped me stay engaged with these people across the country when I'm not even with them right now. I mean, it, this is put together so well. And it is engaging from beginning to end. But as you said, it is chock full of information. Uh, you know, streaming, is it a gift or a curse? How does it affect the artist? The Naked Cowboy, I think everybody has heard of the Naked Cowboy. In, and um, he's no, uh, even I've heard of the Naked Cowboy. And he's got a great thing. You can't sell music without branding. And then you've got people talking about their branding. And you posit the question, can you be good in music and at branding? Uh, and these are things that all of these artists are thinking about. Uh, but then you also get into, you know, what happens when you sign with a major label. And there's some great, great insight there from Infamous Her. Uh, right. <laughs> that just, you know, that's a cautionary tale for all. But you, you have cinematically you really elevate this as well. Like at the 47-minute mark, you've got gorgeous visual transitions um, of cityscapes, nighttime cityscapes, as you're talking about the dangers of social media. Um, just so beautifully packaged on top of everything, Bob. Um, I'm curious, were you editing this as you went? Did you wait until you had portions assimilated and then decide to edit and see what you had what was the your editing process like sure um well it was definitely a edit as we go type of thing mm -hmm. you know when you start out with a first interview i've got some some footage of them performing and i have an interview so through that interview we started almost making an outline of, uh, and, I'm, and again, I've never done a documentary this way, but we almost made an outline of the information that we wanted to get across. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that really comes from our question list. And then as I was filming, and let's say I, once I got like a few interviews filming, I'm, I'm cutting a rough cut of the whole movie. Mm -hmm. um, and very driven by interviews at that point. And then constantly, every time I film, I'm sliding this in, I'm taking that out. I mean, just a, I mean, I, I, by the time I did my last shoot, the last thing I shot, I think we were done with the movie within a month because at that point we already knew what we had and we're going, at, you know, in the beginning we're going after everything, right? Mm -hmm. And then as we get further and further along the way, uh, we're doing more specific things. Like by the time I hit an artist the second or third time, I'm going after something very specific, right. you know, or they have something going on that pays off something from earlier. Um, so it was a, it was an organic process. 
you know, we actually spent quite a bit of time in in Microsoft Word in the beginning, just navigating hours wow. of transcriptions. You know, which <laughs> Aren't was they definitely fun? a different process for me, <laughs> but it really did pay off in in the end. Uh, I feel that uh, we were able to, because again, I was is important to me. I wanted a music artist to be able to watch this and say, if you're starting out, you should definitely watch this movie. Oh. Even if you're not starting, if you're a music artist, you should definitely watch it. But I'm also making it for the masses, so I want to make it entertaining. I'm a big fan of music documentaries, behind the music from back in the day. Mm-hmm. So uh, I love it when you can be informative and you can be engaging and entertaining at the same time. And I think sometimes, especially when you're getting to things that are very informational, that's, that's the challenge, right? Absolutely. So, and you succeed. Uh, I can't tell you. I mean, there. this is high energy. It's entertaining. It's fun. But the information, I mean, you even get into great insight into getting a record deal. Okay. You might not want to be with a major label, but <laughs> when you listen to Infamous Her, but you still would like to get a record deal. When is a good time to start looking at that? And of course, the all important owning your masters, own your masters. Um, you know, that, I, I don't think that, they weren't stressing this enough. That is like everybody's, you've got to own your own content. That's the only way to protect it. Uh, and in that vein, you get into licensing for films, um, which is something I repeatedly bring up with directors, with producers about the you know licensing fees and budgeting for that in films and i was so happy to see you address that in this documentary bob absolutely you know when we when we started that wasn't even one of the things i thought about ironically which i should have because i work in film but sam tenez he really opened up the door on that i mean he makes the majority of his income off of licensing and getting it in, in show placements and NFL and movies and, and whatnot. And, and he's got some of the biggest streaming numbers of any of our artists, and he doesn't even go on tour. He barely yeah. does live shows. So um, it was, uh, and, and, and it, it was also very informative for me as a filmmaker. Like on the back end, I learned a lot about music licensing just getting these artists music in our movie, which was super important to me. It was important to me that you guys are telling this story to artists. Well, let's promote you at the same time, Mm -hmm. you know? And you do a beautiful job of that. I mean, there's a lot of music that you have in the film, stealing oceans, Adara, um, Sam Tenez, Paul McDonald for uh, forest fire gospel choir. You even got a fair amount of their material of their music in here as well. Now, did they all get their license fees and royalty for this? Uh, well, we did do some, <laughs> we, we did do some licensing. Uh, I'll be honest with you, though, because of the content of what this yeah. movie was, because this is um, this is a movie about these artists, yeah, and it's probably the most promotional um, oh. uh, project that they would be involved in. Definitely the most promotional. Yeah. Uh, thing that they would have their music license for. So, for the most part, almost everybody donated a few tracks. Yeah, so, I, which was which was which was great. Um, I, I would again, expect that. I really wanted to uh, 
tell their story, put their music in, and also kind of promote what they've got going on as much as possible. And you did a really good job of that, and you even carry that through in the epilogue uh, that's running with your through your end titles. Uh, so we get to catch up and see where they are. And I think that's spectacular. But what you also do is, you know, this might have started with how much money they can make or how or streaming and how beneficial streaming is now, thanks to the Music Modernization Act. But you bring vinyl in. And I have, oh, I have spent my life as a diehard level, lover of vinyl, acetate. Uh, I even have some 45s that are steel. Uh, that were my father's going back into the 40s. Um, so to see a whole section uh, talking about vinyl and celebrating that and even talking to getting uh, little kids on camera talking about with their bag of all the vinyl that they got on International Record Store Day is fabulous. But you cover the, ga- you cover the gamut here of everything. Everything. Um and you know you really you're the whole movie encourages people to not only love music but support music and the artists be it streaming be it buying vinyls however but you know making sure the artists get their fair due um and i just it's so important so important bob you know what was what's was the most challenging part of making instaband for you as a filmmaker? Um, gosh, I'd have to say the, the hardest part for me was, was uh, out of all the projects I've done, this one has had the most moving pieces technically. So, um, so just getting this thing, getting this jigsaw puzzle kind of that first cut where I kind of see the story, I'd say that was always the hardest. Because this isn't just a, a one-person narrative of what they did the last year. There's a lot of, lot of yep. things, a lot of points I'm trying to hit while I'm telling these people stories. So that's one part. But the other part was just the technical side. There's a lot of, there's a lot of screen records with a lot of graphics in this. When I say mm-hmm. graphics, I mean like how do you treat the, um, the, the screen records from a phone and, and, and make it engaging and yes. cool. Um, and so they're just, and there's stock footage, there's, there's, uh, music videos from the artists. So there's just so many ingredients in this yeah. too, that just kind of wrapping your head around that, it was, was probably the hardest part. And the easiest part was just telling the narrative of these people's story and just the filming was great. I mean, we enjoyed it through the whole, the whole, everything through this whole process was great. And even when I say the hardest part was the technical side. It, it made me grow so much as an editor, you know, so it, it was all now that's actually my most rewarding part. If that makes sense. Well, and as I said, the editing is spectacular. This it is rapier. It is engaging. It's entertaining. Uh, you really you want to watch this. From the minute this doc starts, you want to watch this. It is because it is so visually engaging. The visual hits you before the music does. And as a testament to you as an editor, Bob, it really is. Thank you very much. I mean, it was a, it was a, a, a hard years of work. And, and you know, um, I'm not sure how aware of you are of this, but 
you know, we keep a pretty tight crew around here. It was myself and my wife filming almost everything in the movie. The editing was all us, color correct, sound. I mean, you name it. We're like, we keep it all internal. So win, lose, or draw, it's kind of on our shoulders. And as much as we can, we try to do that because we we like that process. Um, But, yeah, it can can get grueling. (laughs) But I I think that it pays off in the end, which is what we feel now. The proof is in the pudding here, Bob, let me tell you. So now when can everybody see Instaband? Instaband will be available on digital and Blu-ray on the 28th of July, which is a week. Well, it's, it's, it's on a Tuesday. It's a week from tomorrow. And uh, it'll be pretty much, it's, you know, our main places are iTunes. I always sway people towards that because that's where you can see it uh, in 4K. And, and it's funny because even on the iTunes link, it links to all the music artists, music pages, oh. which is great. But there, it'll also be available for rent and purchase on Amazon and pretty much anywhere you would rent or purchase a movie. Wow. Well done, yeah. Bob. And you can get, you, and, and our handle too is Instaband uh, Movie on all platforms. So if you're not sure, you just go there and it'll point you to the right direction. And the website is instabandmovie.com. You've made it very easy for everyone to find it. Very easy, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I do my best. Oh, Bob, I can't thank you enough uh, for coming on the show today. This is spectacular, and I can't recommend this Instaband highly enough. It is fantastic, and as I said at the top of the show, I mean, this is for all. I know so many artists that can benefit seeing this who are in that middle-tier band section. Um, This is one of those those must-have, must-own, must-see a lot of times to glean all this information. You've done all the hard work for people. I just love it. I just love it, Bob. Thank you so much. Uh, Hearing that from you is is the reason why we make movies, right? I mean, yourself not even being a music artist, but getting that much enjoyment, this is why we do it. So that means a lot. Well, I can't wait to see what you do next, and I hope you come back on the show again. I would love to have you. Absolutely. You know, me me and my wife have been filming during the quarantine on our third documentary, which is called Token Tavern, uh, about arcade bars. So it's classic gaming and craft beer. (laughs) All right. Well, we can get into that. I'm all for that. Okay. Yeah. Bob, thank you so, so much. And I can't wait to see the next one. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks, Bob. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Bob Rose, cinematographer, director, and editor. I got news for you, filmmakers, editors out there. Even if you if you have no interest in music or what this doc has to say, it is well worth seeing it for what Bob has done editing-wise uh, in, in the film. It's fabulous. Instaband, out next Tuesday everywhere. The Outpost, everywhere right now. And again, if you haven't read Jake Tapper's book, read it. And also, another really great read is Red Platoon by Clint Romashaw. Um, so, that is all the time we have today. And yes, we ran over. Uh, so, and Pam's grinning. So, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Thank <laughs> you.